Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. I'm Julia, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Amanda and Zach. You're listening to the first episode of our 2020 presidential election series. To prepare for the upcoming election, POFA will be discussing the recent emergence of a progressive approach to foreign policy, as well as what foreign policy might look like under either a Biden administration or a second Trump term. Then we will be examining the role of technology in election interference and the importance of polling Americans on foreign policy issues. As a reminder for the election series, while POFA hosts will be following up on questions, POFA hosts are not meant to overtly debate the positions of our guests. Rather, we will be leaving that critical thinking to you, the listener. At the conclusion of the election series, POFA hosts will be casually discussing their personal thoughts on the series as a whole. In this first episode of the series, we will be discussing progressive foreign policy as outlined by policymakers such as Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. So what are the core themes of progressive foreign policy? How do they differ from the traditional realist versus idealist or conservative versus liberal fault lines? What might the future of progressive foreign policy look like? Joining us to discuss these questions is Professor Sita Raman. Ganesh Sita Raman is a professor of law and the director of the Program on Law and Government at Vanderbilt Law School. He teaches and writes about constitutional law, the regulatory state, economic policy, democracy, and foreign affairs. Sita Raman's most recent book is The Great Democracy, How to Fix Our Politics, Unrig the Economy, and Unite America. The premise of our podcast today comes from his April 2019 War on the Rocks article, The Emergence of Progressive Foreign Policy. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much, Professor, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So to get us started, in your April 2019 We're on the Rocks article, um, you briefly outline um, a few themes of progressive foreign policy. Could you briefly lay these out again? We will delve deeper into these themes as the podcast goes on. Yeah, I'm happy to. So what, what I did was I went through and read a variety of speeches, articles, uh, and other things that had been written in recent years from progressives outlining their view of foreign policy. And having read through a bunch of that, it it really struck me that there were a number of themes that just kept coming up over and over again that I think really are themes um, that in many ways capture what a kind of progressive foreign policy looks like. And, and the five that I lay out in the War on the Rocks article are first that it breaks the silos between foreign and domestic um, and between economic and non-economic. And so in a lot of cases, what you see are progressives talking a lot about how important things like economic inequality uh, and, and racial justice is at home um, and the impact that that might have on national strength, resilience, um, and, our, and our role in the world. Um, and so that, that kind of sense that our domestic politics and policy uh, is really intertwined with our foreign is really one of the central things I think about, about progressive foreign policy. Um, the second category is what I would call a kind of focus and worry about authoritarian capitalism, um, or what I've called in other places, nationalist oligarchy. Um, and the idea is that this is a kind of government that merges together really three things. First, policies that help the wealthy um, and, and well-connected crony capitalism, uh, corruption, that kind of thing. Um, and that this small group of wealthy people who are favored by the government uh, are able to stay in power by both stirring up nationalist divisions within the population and by rigging the rules of politics uh, to stay in office. 
Um, and this kind of government you see in different parts around the world. Um, and it's something that's very uh, problematic, not only because of how different it is from democracy and because of how uh, it, it in some ways really subverts what democracy is in, 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 in really a fulsome way, um, but also because of how some of the countries who, who practice this type of government use economic integration and economic power in order to influence or shape or pressure uh, democracies. And so um, some scholars have called this weaponized interdependence. Um, others call it reverse entanglement. But the basic idea behind this is that economic uh, integration often gets used as a geopolitical tool to accomplish uh, particular ends. Um, and that that's something that can be dangerous for democracies uh, who are not wary of what those ends are being used for. Um, the, the third category, uh, I'd say, is, is really alliances, and especially uh, emphasizing alliances with um, close allies who are democracies. Uh, and this goes back to the, the, the latter point, um, which is really a sense that there are a number of countries that have a lot of shared values, um, and that we should be building closer ties with those countries and really emphasizing um, how important it is for us to work together to accomplish shared goals. Uh, the fourth category is um, a skepticism of military intervention and the opposition to democracy promotion by force. Um, and, you know, I think this is something that uh, really has gained a lot of steam um, in the last decade, especially, uh, and, and is, a, is a reaction to the interventions of the years before. Um, and that's something maybe we can talk a little bit more about. Uh, and then the final category is... Um, cutting and, and reshaping the military budget. You know, I think one of the things that's a common theme across uh, progressive foreign policy is the sense that uh, the military budget's too big um, and that it both needs to be uh, uh, reduced, but also that we need to rethink how and what we're spending on um, both in the military and more broadly uh, in foreign affairs generally. And so th those themes, I think, come up pretty frequently in, in a lot of writings by progressives on foreign policy that... I think they're really a common set of themes that in some ways um, may define the category of what it means to be a progressive doing foreign policy. Professor, how does foreign progressive foreign policy differ from existing traditions in foreign policy? How does it differ from maybe um, one might say mainstream democratic foreign policy ideas? Well, well let me shake out the two, uh, the two big categories that I think were really dominant for a long period of time over the last half century. Um, and that is neoconservatism uh, and liberal internationalism. Um, and I think what's striking about the themes that I just went through on progressive foreign policy um, is that they are different from both of these traditions in a couple of important ways. The first is that both neocons and liberal internationalists um, were much more interested in intervention than the progressive foreign policy um, folks are. Uh, there's a much greater skepticism of using the military um, in order to intervene in foreign countries and, and, a, and an extreme skepticism um, that such interventions can be successfully used for things like nation building or democracy promotion. Um, so that's, I think, one, one big difference uh, between the two. Um, the other difference, I think, is a, a bigger... Um, a, a kind of deep opposition uh, to neoliberal economics at the global scale. And so one of the common themes over the last uh, number of decades was a sense that in the international sphere, 
we should have a system of deregulation, privatization, uh, trade liberalization, and austerity. And that was something that was pushed uh, on foreign countries to do, um, was often done at home. Um, and uh, what was seen as part of the architecture of the international system, this kind of neoliberal uh, uh, mode of globalization. Um, and I think that's something that the progressive foreign policy uh, uh that people writing as progressives in foreign policy are, are, deep, are deeply opposed to. And, and the sense of how domestic economics affects foreign policy and how foreign policy affects domestic economics um, is a key part of that, uh, where I think people are seeing, you know, widening inequality, um, real imbalances of economic power, uh, how those threaten social solidarity, how those um, shape national strength and resilience, uh, and see that there are problems in the kind of neoliberal um, global economic system uh, that need to be changed uh, and, and that they have an interactive effect on our domestic politics um, and the functioning of our democracy. So I think those are, those are probably the, the two big ways in which uh, there's a difference from what came before. Professor Sitaraman, I want to ask you, as you've mentioned already in this discussion and in your War on the Rocks article, progressive foreign policy thinkers reject the notion that through neoliberal economics and through economic integration, interconnection, that authoritarian capitalist governments will liberalize. They reject that notion. So what is the warrant for that rejection, given that it's so central to liberal internationalism and neoconservatism? Yeah, so I, I don't think I don't think this is a premise of progressive foreign policy specifically. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people across uh, a lot of different perspectives in foreign policy um, are coming to uh, and have come to over the last few years, in some cases quite publicly. Um, maybe the best example of this is a number of years ago, uh, Kurt Campbell, um, uh, who, who is a longtime expert on, on Asia, uh, had an article in, in Foreign Affairs magazine where he really was reassessing policy toward China and and part of his his argument in that piece was that one thing that's happened is um, is that the the policies we pursued about integration on economic issues and and so on did not actually lead to liberalization um, or uh, the kind of creation uh, or, or progress towards liberal democracy. Uh, that people assumed that they would or thought that, that or thought would happen from those policies. Um, I think that kind of reckoning, um, which was a very prominent article, really shaped a lot of people's thinking about this um, and, and is not something that's uh, confined to progressives at all. Um, more broadly, though, I, you know, I would point out that, you know, one thing about the category of nationalist oligarchies or, or authoritarian capitalist um, countries is is understanding that how they work and that they're not the same as liberal democracies um, and that they have a different kind of logic uh, to what they're up to um, and what their interests are uh, and that that's something that that has to be taken into account um, as as we think about our own policies well I, I think that kind of leads me to an interesting follow-up which is you know if the end goal of, of foreign policy with these as you say nationalist oligarchies isn't liberalization, what, what is the end goal? Is it kind of just learning to live in a world where there are nationalist oligarchies that we will just forever compete with? Or, you know, that's something that I think about a lot is kind of what is the end goal, if not liberalization? 
Well, in, in some cases, you're asking a much broader question, actually, which is a, a big question about what is the purpose of foreign policy? What is the aims of uh, of a um, of our leadership in thinking about the goals of the country and what should we be trying to do as a country? And and that's a function of a, a lot of different things. You know, um, I think there are different writers who who would frame it differently in different ways. I think that there are different progressives who would frame it differently uh, in different ways. You know, I, I would say uh, to myself that a core. Uh, component of what U.S. grand strategy should be about is preserving, protecting, uh, expanding, and flir- and and making a flourishing democracy in America, and ensuring that we have uh, a democratic uh, system um, that is based on uh, self determination, that's based on uh, the public interest, that's based on the rule of law, and that this is uh, you know the the highest value. Um, in terms of politics, I mean, I think there's a, there's there are, there are moral values domestically as well in terms of serving the interests and um, and values of our people uh, domestically. But I think the response there's a huge responsibility on those kinds of questions. Um, but I think it's a it's a it's a deep question because if you you know depending on the view you take uh, about what the purposes of foreign policy should be or or where the U.S. is um, in terms of its uh, powers and and abilities. Um, uh, domestically and around the world, um, you know, I think different people come to different conclusions about that. Um, so, so, so that's sort of my, my answer is that I think that we uh, should have a set of policies that really ensure that the United States um, uh, is able to, over the over over the long run, uh, remain a democracy, and that's really a core part of what you know this experiment from the very founding was. Was is it possible to have governments? Uh, that are created from reflection and choice, and and operate that way as opposed to operating by by force. And that's you know in, in the Federalist Number One, Alexander Hamilton says that. And I think that's a core part of what our uh, our goals as as a country uh, are, and um, what our leaders need to be thinking about is is how you know free society uh, continues. So you pointed out earlier that progressive foreign policy should. Focused on, focus on creating treaties and relationships with countries that share the United States' democratic values. So how does this play out when we attempt to tackle transnational problems that will require cooperation with those that don't share those values, like with, for example, China on issues like climate change? It's a good, it's a good question. It's one that comes up a lot. And I think there's a, a, a sense that people have, and I don't know quite where it comes from, that if you're deepening cooperation with with some allies, um, say you know uh, some of our closest allies, you know, Canada, countries in Western Europe, um, uh, that you cannot also work with others. And, I, and I'm not sure why that that has to be the case. Um, you know what I would say is that we have relationships with countries all around the world. We have different degrees of of closeness with with countries. That it's not a black and white. Um, you're either allowed to cooperate or you're not allowed to cooperate at all. That's that's not really how the world works. And in fact, you know, when you think back to um, the Cold War, uh, we were in the midst of the Cold War um, making treaties with the Soviet Union and cooperating on extremely important questions, actually. Um, and that was, you know, at a time of, of, of obviously... Um, uh, a kind of deeply adversarial relationship. So um, the idea that we can't cooperate, that we have to 
choose not to cooperate at all on some issues um, unless we go all in on on creating deep, deep partnerships, I think isn't isn't right. And I think part of what we need to do is is understand that we don't have to frame the question that way. Um, and, and we should think that we can cooperate on, on things where we can um, and know that on other areas, it's not going to be possible. And, and I think that's that's the way forward. And so what, what I think a progressive foreign policy, though, is really focused on in in you know, having read a number of articles that, that I would characterize in that vein is that at this moment, one of the key priorities has to be um, rebuilding and deepening relationships with close allies, and that that's a really important part of what has to happen at this moment. Professor, one of the key tenets of progressive foreign policy, and that just keeps coming through as you speak, is the coordination of domestic policy to foreign policy. Um, in your recent foreign affairs article, you argue that the tying of domestic policy to foreign policy should be undertaken through a grand strategy of resilience. Um, would you outline this concept of a grand strategy of resilience for our listeners? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, I, I, I think one thing that we can see and that I think especially COVID um, and the climate fires in the West you know, really, really make quite clear um, is that the coming era is going to be one in which we face health crises, climate shocks, uh, geoeconomic competition with great powers, cyber attacks. And, and what unites these seemingly disparate threats is that each one is not so much a battle that can be won as it is a challenge that has to be weathered or endured. And so when I talk about a grand strategy of resilience, uh, what I mean is that we need to have an economy, a society, and a democracy that can prevent these challenges when possible, uh, and also endure, bounce back, and adapt when necessary, and to do so without suffering thousands of deaths, without seeing millions of people unemployed. And what that means is it's going to mean um, really building a, a country at home that is able to withstand a lot of these challenges. And, and one of the great things about that, I think, and, and we could talk about some of the ways in which we do this, but one of the great things about becoming more resilient at home is it actually is good for us in other ways too. Um, because a country that's more resilient at home is also gonna be a country that unleashes the potential of its people uh, in terms of their creativity, in terms of their innovation, in terms of their um, uh, their economic potential. Um, and so I think what we're actually going to see is that a more resilient country is going to be one that flourishes in a lot of different ways. Uh, and so I think there's great opportunity there. Can you give some examples on how um, investing in a resilient United States can make us more competitive on the world stage? Sure. So think about um, think about our social infrastructure. You know, we often talk about infrastructures just like roads and bridges, you know, which are all things that enable us to do lots of other things, including commercially. Uh, and they're the basic kind of foundational building blocks of, of commerce in our society. Well, a lot of things that are part of our, our society are actually infrastructure. And so you could think about childcare, for example, or healthcare as a system of, of social infrastructure. Um, if you are sick, you are not able to go to work. Um, and that's going to have consequences for growth, productivity, and a wide variety of other things, in addition to, um, you know, the consequences, the health consequences, personal consequences, emotional consequences, 
uh, of being of being ill. Um, you know, the absence of childcare means that for many many people, being able to just manage their day to day life is extremely difficult, and I think even more so now. You know, as, as we've seen in in COVID times, where people are in some cases, you know, running their own uh, schoolhouse um, from their living room while also trying to have two parents uh, working full time jobs. Um, that that's a challenging thing to do, and it, it really uh, constrains your productivity. It constrains creativity, and it also just constrains the ability of a family to to flourish in terms of the stresses that are pace, placed on uh, parents and on and on children. Um, so I think you know building a resilient social infrastructure uh, on things like healthcare and childcare are things that not only help us in terms of growth and economic potential. But when a crisis comes, you know, when you have a major pandemic um, like we're in now, if you have a system where everyone has health insurance that is um, something that is there that is guaranteed, that they know they have, that is high quality, uh, that that you know is affordable, that's a very different situation than a situation where people might lose their job in a in a crisis and also with that lose their health insurance. Um, th there are real problems to having uh, these kind of more fragile systems uh, of social infrastructure for both the crises um, and also for just moving through through normal life as well. And Professor, just to round us out for this interview, um, I I'm wondering, let's say we have like these authoritarian countries, say China, if they're operating on a grand strategy that is not resilience, maybe it's a grand strategy of trying to move you know, forward in terms of development, in terms of technological advancement as quickly as possible without regard to the possible costs of doing so. And the United States is focused on a strategy of resilience if that, you know, whether or not that means having to go maybe a little bit slower than we would otherwise, does that put the United States at a risk? So I don't think I accept the premise of the of the question in a way. So I, I don't think that there is a trade-off um, in the way that you framed it in the kind of resilient strategy, because a core part of being more resilient is going to be investing in things like research and development, like an industrial policy that thinks seriously about supply chains and technology issues. Um, those are going to be part of resilience because those are things that make us stronger and make us better able to weather any of these kinds of challenges that we might face in the future. So, so I don't think there is a, a conflict between those two things. Um, the other thing that I would say is that I, I'm not sure that, um, uh, that we should see that as something that makes us weaker. In fact, I think it makes us stronger um, because to the extent that we are able to both be a country that is resilient in the face of crises, we are also a country that is resilient in the face of threats. Um, and what that means is that there's a deterrent value that also comes from being stronger at home and being more resilient at home. So I think we get a lot of benefits from this approach, um, uh, e even in the face of a variety of different strategies that, might, uh, that, that other countries might take up. Thank you so much, Professor, uh, for joining us on such an insightful episode of the podcast today. Thank you. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, 
and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.